This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I normally discuss not just one serial killer, but compare several serial killers and something they have in common. But today we have something different in store for you. I'm allowing Igor out of the dungeon to present the thug cult to you. I know you will find it enlightening and illuminating. But before we move forward, I will remind you to keep an eye out for merch information, my Hunt a Killer adventures, and other Murder Lab stuff on Facebook and Instagram. You can go to MurderLabMedia.com for all your Murder Lab wants and needs. We are available on Google Play and iTunes. And don't forget to share with your friends and enemies. Igor, take it away. It is I, Igor. Queen Bees allowed me to come back. I'm going to be talking about the Thuggy Cult. And I found this tidbit of information in Susan Hall's Encyclopedia of Serial Killers and the most recent release. And the things that brought my eye to it and it really intrigued me was the following cult, early 1800s, as I love old-timey things, India, criminal secret society, pop culture influences, i.e. movies, serial killer leader, Aryan Brotherhood, although not really, but uh, we all know they're the Dogecoin of ass lemon, so history of the term thug, goddess worship, and controversy. Were they ordinary criminals made larger by the religious cult narrative, or did they even ever exist? Hmm, let's get into this, shall we? I'm going to use the word strangle and attack a lot, so this is a perfect time if you want to follow along as a drinking game. So who were the thuggies? The time frame location we're talking about is in the 14th century in central India and Bengal. Estimates have their death toll of up to 1 million, but since it was so long ago, it's kind of hard to prove. Now I'm going to be reading from the Socians before the British came. To rule over India, thug violence and robberies were extremely prevalent in the giant amalgamation of a country that India is. There were a lot of disappearances of, an, of entire convoys and groups of people. Some of the darkest and quietest hours of the nights of late 18th century were also the bloodiest nights of the same. So I thought that was perfect to set everything up. Get us in the mood. Background of the thug cult. Thug is from a Sanskrit word meaning cover or conceal. Thug is a Hindi word meaning deceiver or swindler. The British called them the deceivers, which is not to be confused with the proclaimers, although I'm sure they did walk 500 miles. Like the mafia, the women did not know how their spouses earned their living and often was held in high esteem in their communities. Sometimes they're described as the world's first mafia. Since they traveled a lot, as you'll see, it was easy for the families to say, hey, they're, they're on this mission or they're doing this certain work. I'm not sure what they told them. They come back. 
they have money, and they took care of their people, apparently, or there was talk that they did, belief that they did, so that's how they were able to have that screen, if you will, of normalcy. Now, there are various origin stories about the Thuggy Call. The one that I read the most prevalent was there are seven great Thug families that were Muslim, but they had to flee the capital after the emperor's favorite slave was killed by one of the clan. Another one I saw was Muslims fleeing Delhi after murdering a doctor or murdering a favorite slave of Emperor Akbar. One of the thuggies killing a favorite slave of the emperor, that seems to be the most prevalent. As they left the capital, they spread thuggy amongst the various communities comprised of different backgrounds of people settling around the country. And now there were some female thugs, and they're called Baronese, or Baroni, B-A-R-O-N-E-E. They were recognized as regular taxpaying professionals, like I said, and continued for centuries to practice their craft, free of inquiry from Hindu rulers. So somehow, I wasn't able to find what they were telling people they were doing, but most of this is based on Mike Dash's book. He had a lot of information. The beliefs were a lot of contradictions. I had mentioned goddess worship. Kali was the primary goddess that the majority of the cult worshipped. She's the Hindu goddess of time, creation, destruction, and power. In Kali's most famous legend, she is summoned to combat the demons and enters out of the would-be hero's forehead with a sword and noose in hand. So that's a bit of a foreshadowing, as we'll see. But I, I love that imagery. The other goddess, it was Bhavani. She's worshipped in certain parts of India. She's known as the goddess of power, of justice, motherhood, and goddess of emotions. She's considered to be a mother who provides for her devotees and also play, plays the role of dispensing justice. So very similar to Kali. The cultists, the thuggies, believed that each murder prevented Kali's arrival for one millennium. This assisted in them thinking that they played a positive role in saving human lives. Without the thug sacrifice or the sacred service, Kali might destroy all mankind. So, again, contradiction. Uh, we have to kill to save everybody. But we're going to kill a select few, and we'll go over who that is and who that isn't. They did believe that they were Kali's sweat children. You think about it, most Children are sweat children. You know what I'm talking about. Their victims were given to the goddess Kali as sacrifice. And due to this, she allowed them to keep the stolen assets, i.e. the wealth of their intended victims. When the deed was done, meaning the murder, rites were performed in the deity's honor and a significant portion of the spoils were set apart for her. I just find that interesting. I'm, I'm sure no one took it and used it after they murdered, but you'll notice that they, what they believe is you kill so there can be a sacrifice. You don't steal and then sacrifice. Uh, you don't do it just to steal. There's a greater quote-unquote good here going on in their minds. It should be noted that even at the time, a very small minority of the followers of Kali were thuggies, whereas the majority of followers did not share the thuggy viewpoint. So I liken it to just because you say you're a vegetarian doesn't mean you like broccoli, and just because you like broccoli doesn't mean you're a vegetarian. I don't know, I thought that made an interesting point because 
you just don't want everyone thinking that everyone in that area at that time had the same belief. And like I mentioned before, the Baronese, their female counterparts, they were in a secret sect of tantrics. Now, when I think of tantric, I think of tantric sex. And Sting, if you guys heard that rumor, wowza. Woo, heavens. So the secret sect of Tantras, who held that it was only by a constant indulgence in passion that a human could ever achieve total union with Kali, only indulgence in the five vices that corrupt the soul of humankind, wine, meat, fish, mystical gesticulations, and sexual indulgence, could drive the poisons out of the human body and purify the soul. So these are now my tenants, but I've exchanged the meat one for Halo Top mint chocolate chip ice cream. It's so good. According to the 19th century writings about Thuggy, the will of the goddess by the whose command and in whose honor they followed their calling was revealed to them through a very complicated system of omens. This made them very superstitious, and they were always looking out for what they felt were omens. Obedience of these, they were said to have traveled hundreds of miles in the company with or in the wake of their intended victims before an opportunity presented itself via the omens. So that meant that they would ingratiate themselves in with the travelers, convince them they, hey, I'm just like you, dude, and then wait until they had a high sign and then go for it. About a third of the cult were Muslims and are thought to have believed that Allah would forgive them in the afterlife for the actions they took in this one. The Muslims of the group assimilated Bhavani as a subordinate to Allah. She's the giver of life. Contrary to what it seems like, they thought that by killing now, they would be forgiven. Since the thuggy assassins were united by common superstitions and rituals, this led to the gang being branded a cult or sect. They probably didn't have as bad of a rep until it was learned what they were doing as far as the killing the murdering first and then taking it and I have a quote here in just a minute that'll kind of sum up how horrific and offensive it was to them to the thuggies thinking that they were just doing this for the money the wealth they were also bound by a set of rules such as the prohibition they weren't able to steal a person's property without killing them in accordance with the ritual first. So again, don't just take, that's to kills. Brahmins were not killed because of their purity. Killing of the sick was considered an unworthy sacrifice, and women were not killed because they were considered to be the incarnations of Kali. Now we'll see that they will start changing this, but they also had a peculiar code of ethics. They forbade the killing of fakirs, F-A-K-I-R-S, which is a Muslim or Hindu religious aesthetic, musicians, dancers, sweepers, oil vendors, carpenters, blacksmiths, maimed or leprous persons, Ganges water carriers, and again, women. I find interesting about the dancers and sweepers and, the, and whatnot. Sometimes I wondered if it was just because of things that they didn't want to do, because if they start killing too many of certain types, then other people will have to start doing it. I don't know. So I'm just wondering if it wasn't laziness. I don't want to have to do that job. Don't kill a janitor. I mind cleaning up. 
Despite the restriction against the murder of females, however, the presence of wives traveling with their husbands often necessitated the strangling of a woman to protect the secrecy of the society. Well, they are consistent and being very odd. The strongest rule of the Brotherhood was one prohibiting the shedding of blood. According to their beliefs, the goddess Kali taught the fathers of thuggery to strangle with a noose and to kill without permitting the flow of blood. So the noose, we have it, the whole forehead imagery coming out of the would-be hero. Again, I think it's interesting they chose the permitting the flow of blood. So maybe were they laying on a mattress, a, like a sponge, when they do start killing here with the knives? They could just say, hey, technically, there wasn't flow. All victims of the thuggies were sacrificed to Kali, and the members of the secret society would have been greatly incensed by an accusation they killed only for the booty. Not junk-in-the-trunk booty. Well, maybe. I don't know. With the exception of a small number of boys who may have been captured or spared during a raid, a man had to be born into the cult in order to become an initiate had to inherit their membership from the father, and they usually only took one if they had multiple sons. Thinking about that, maybe, again, is to keep that screen up of wanting of everyone thinking that they're normal, and if, you know, you know just Billy Bob and Joe go off, Adam and his aunt stay here. They tried to adopt the children from the travelers that they killed instead of killing the children as well, but they also wanted to avoid witnesses. So just like the women, you're not supposed to kill A, B, and C, dot, 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 unless the minimum age for initiation into the society was 10 years old, and the young candidates were allowed to watch their elders at work from hidden points some distance from the side of the attack. It's like bring your daughter to work day, but thuggy style. At the age of 18, they were permitted to make their first human sacrifices to Kali. You know, you can vote, you can smoke, maybe. I don't know, has that changed? And you can make your first sacrifice. So, you know, that's what I would be looking forward to. Besides family, other ways of becoming a thug, groomed by a cult member, some men became thugs to escape great poverty, or you could learn it from a guru. So it's kind of like learning it from a guru is guru is like a criminal apprenticeship, I think. Sometimes the children of travelers who were not killed were groomed to become thugs, and it was also good for them to have children around because they didn't they didn't look odd to the other people around them. They're, oh, they're just a family. You know, they got kids, they've got a wife, you know, whatever. We can hang with them. They looked down on regular thieves, like I said. Ordinary theft was low and dirty. And this is the quote I was referring to. This was told upon capture. This thug says, A thug rides his horse, wears his dagger, and shows a front. Thieving? Never. Never. If a banker's treasure was before me and entrusted to my care, though in hunger and dying, I would scorn to steal. But let a banker go on a journey, and I would certainly murder him. So I'm thinking more artistry and flair? I don't know. Again, keeping it to their code. So their MO, as Mike Dash states, it's it was unique because they killed the victims prior to robbing them. They did not cl- kill close to home. One thug said that they had a quote-unquote custom of not murdering within 200 miles where they lived. They worked in groups of three attacking sleeping men. 
two would hold him down, and the other would strangle with his scarf. They used military-style rankings, starting with private and going on up to, like, Grand Poobah. I don't know. I don't know ranks anymore. So they started off strangling, typically with a scarf. Then they moved on to poison and blades. Now, I didn't see a lot or hear a lot about the poisoning as much as them after strangling using blades. But they strangled the victim by throwing a yellow scarf, or ramal, R-U-M-A-A-L, symbolic of Kali, around the neck. Then they'd steal from the dead and discard their bodies. At some point, they started stabbing after strangling as someone survived and then was able to give the details of the attack. So this obviously discounts the theory they didn't shed any blood. Thugs would ingratiate themselves with travelers, as I stated before, take them by surprise, killing them with a handkerchief or a noose. Ugh. So they would only attack if, a gr- if their group, the thug group, was larger than the travelers, which makes sense, and they would attack in the dark. After killing and looting them, the bodies would be dumped in it well nearby. But I also heard other places, not just wells. But they obviously wanted them out of sight where they wouldn't be found for a long time and they could move on to their next site. They set their sights on tourists, traders, and pilgrims. They tried to pick on the wealthier class. And then when a favorable opportunity arose, they plundered and buried them. They killed their victims in the darkness while the thugs made music or noise to escape discovery. So each member of the group had its own function. Like some people would lure travelers with charming words or they would be the guardians to present the escape of the victims while the killing took place. Three dudes would be on the person doing the event, the duty. And then there'd be people placed around, so in case they broke free and ran, they would be stopped. Even those who, from age or infirmities, could no longer take an active part in the ritual murder, continued to aid to the cause as watchers, spies, or dressers of food. Which I imagine them putting, like, a hat on a chicken breast or booties on some asparagus. They had their own system of communicating. It was called Ramesse. It was the language they made up, along with secret signs. Now, I don't know with the secret signs if they mean, like, Navy SEAL signs, or they were doing, like, the blowjob sign to each other. But I would think that people would be like, oh, something else is going on. I may be down with this. It was said that they could plot the death of the intended victim right in front of them, and they wouldn't have a clue. They would imitate the cries of a jackal to warn the other members of the arrival of a convoy. Hearing the cry, Barum... B-E-H-R-A-M, and his gang would arrive with the yellow handkerchief. So again, we got the handkerchief and yellow color for Kali. But Bayram, we're talking about him now. The leader was Thug Bayram, B-E-H-R-A-M, 1765 to 1840. He was known as Bayram Jemadar and also the king of the thugs, often cited as one of the world's most prolific serial killers or an quote-unquote Indian mob boss. By the age of 10, he had already started murdering. He was paired with a female thug named Dolly in his early days in the cult, and I can't help but imagine him with Dolly Parton. He began thugging at 25 and eventually became the leader of 200 thugs. Now, he garroted with his ceremonial rumal or cummerbund that had a large jewel sewn into it to assist in choking. So, 
The jewel would work that Adam's apple like a walnut. His rumal was yellow, and he says, uh, I found another source that says he kept a coin in it instead of a jewel. I guess still working on the Adam's apple, but I'm not sure with the coin. Maybe it threw people off. I don't know. He may have been involved in up to 931 murders by strangling between 1790 and 1840. Now, if you haven't, and I'm taking that you haven't seen a picture of him, look him up because he wasn't bad on the eyes. And I'm not saying that I'd kick him out of bed. He has this like prince vibe, at least in the picture I saw. Maybe that just says something about me. Probably does. James Payton, an East India Company officer working for the Thuggy and Dacoity office, that sounds dirty, in the, 19, in the 1830s, who wrote a manuscript on Thuggy, quotes Burham as saying he had been present at 931 cases of murder, and I may have strangled with my own hands about 125 men, and I may have seen strangled 150 more. He was hanged in 1840, but there was one source that said it was 1841, and another says he was arrested in the year 1838 and was hanged. It seems like 1840 is the year that I had, saw the most consistency. Talking about the capture of not only him, but of the other thuggy cult members, 1820s. William Sleeman was onto them. He was selected by the British government to investigate the thug attacks. Another source says it was the 1830s when they were on the radar of Governor General of India, Lord William Bentnick, and his chief captain, William Henry Sleeman. I am going to now refer to Bentnick as Lord Benny because it makes me think and want Eggs Benedict. So Lord Benny started an extensive campaign involving profiling, troublesome, intelligence, and executions. He was able to begin predicting where they would strike next by researching and plotting the locations of the cult strikes. The campaign was heavily based on informants recruited from the captured thugs who were offered protection on the condition that they told them everything they knew. So by the 1870s, the thug cult was extinct, but the concept of criminal tribes and criminal caste is still used in India today. Again, not great. Placed, he had placed undercover agents among the travelers to try and prevent the, ta uh, the attacks, which was a new way of thinking. Bayram was said to have killed the first five teams that were sent by Britishers to find and stop him before Sealand was sent. So I just think that's funny. Kind of like, I imagine like a cartoon where they send these people, they're like running, and then he sends them back and they're like um, Daffy Duck when he blows his beak backward, you know, and he's got this, the gunpowder on his face and stuff. I imagine they kind of run back to him like that. The thuggy informers were given immunity by the turning in members. They were, they were referred to given the names of approvers, but I'm not sure how much immunity that they were really given, as we'll see in a second by the totals that they say were captured and, and what happened to them. Immunity, what I'm thinking is absolution moving forward without penalty, but I don't think that happened. So between a minimum of 3,700 thugs were captured by the Indian authorities between 1830 and 1870. It's believed that the thuggy cult was no more in business by then, like I had mentioned. Between 1830 and 1841, Slayman's police captured at least 
3,700 thugs. Of this total, only 50 received a pardon for supplying valuable information. The remainder of those were imprisoned for life and 500 were hanged. This goes on to say nearly 4,000 thugs were discovered from another source, and of those, 2,000 were convicted. The remaining were either sentenced to death or transported within the next six years. So it sounds like they were sent back to their home or deported. Again, with the deaths and everything and convictions, I'm just wondering if it was really immunity. A band of 20 confessed that they had participated in 5,200 murders. That, that's a lot. An individual named Burham, who had been a strangler for 40 years, our buddy, the walnut worker, had the highest lifetime score to his discredit, 931. When asked if he experienced any feelings of remorse or guilt, he answered sharply, no man should ever feel compunction in following his trade. Hmm. So that's a no. The trials were from 1829 to 1848, and in many instances, the thuggies' final request from the hangman was that they be permitted to place the noose around their own neck, which is interesting because they never gave the opportunity to their people that they murdered, but maybe they did. Hey, you want this? You want to put this around and then I'm going to take over? So there is controversy, as I had mentioned up top, and it's not just a song by Prince, which a family member of mine once asked me why Prince was singing about Dr. Pepsi. In the 1950s, historians began to reassess the thuggy portrayal. The first theory that came about was they were products of British dominion in India in that they were mostly soldiers thrown out of service due to the Pax Britannica, or British peace, whereby the British Empire became the main world power and adopted the role of a global policeman. Theory two, the thuggies were bandits that were hired by minor rajas or landholders to steal for them in order to generate the income needed to build the state. Theory three, they were just raiders with no fixed MO who had been labeled as thug by the British when captured. And theory four, or what Mike Dash calls the revisionist theory, they never even existed. It's all just conjuncture, um, maybe based in truth, but mostly just fable. Now, my favorite part is how they are represented in pop culture and movies. The thuggy cult and Aryan Brotherhood, I had kind of mentioned them again at the beginning, they both are unparalleled violent cults, which I hadn't thought of. Mark Twain even referenced a Slayman report in his book, Following the Equator. I'm not familiar with that, but it's Mark Twain, you know? The 1839 novel Confessions of a Thug by Philip Meadows Taylor quickly became a bestseller in England and beyond and was instrumental in introducing the word thug to a greater population. That's where the history comes in. And interestingly enough as well, according to the 1979 Guinness Book of Records, the thuggy cult was responsible for approximately 2 million deaths. A lot of respect for Guinness. How do they? I'd be very curious how they... How do you validate that? Barham is in the Guinness Book of World Records for killing 931 people. So he is in there. And my favorite here, Indiana Jones. You may be familiar with the Indiana Jones movie. It showcases a thuggy cult with a, with a fictionalized religious ritual. And the primary antagonist 
Molaram being a thuggy high priest of Kali. So that part when they're in that cave and I don't know if they're saying yama, 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 whatever. And that person's being spun around and then he just reaches in and grabs his heart out. Awesome. Also a movie Gunga Din. Now I'm, I'm familiar with it because my dad used to talk about it, but that movie was about a conflict with the resurgent sect of thuggy cultists. So I may have to watch it now. Plus it has a very young Sir Alec Guinness. I think his name is, went on to be Obey One. The Rolling Stones, Sympathy for the Devil, features the lyrics, and I laid traps for the troubadours who get killed before they reach Bombay. And some feel that that's possibly a reference to the murder of Tibetan musicians by the thuggy cultists. Another classic, Help, by the Beatles, a film which revolves around the Beatles' encounters with an Eastern cult and is thought to be a parody of the thuggies. And this goes into my fave and personal binging extraordinaire currently is the Hammer Films. Hammer Film Productions, you have it. If you're not familiar, get familiar. It's amazing. 1959, legendary British horror studio Hammer Film Productions released The Stranglers of Bombay. In the film, Guy Rolfe portrays a heroic British officer battling institutional mismanagement by the British East India Company, as well as a thuggy infiltration of Indian society in an attempt to bring the cultists to justice. So we did it. We hit it all, kids. I appreciate you hanging with me and listening to me and make sure that you like, subscribe, and share, 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 share. My fellow lab rats, Queen V is now ushering me back into the lab with offers of salty fish head goodness. So I go our departs. Remember, everyone must find their truth. And mine is Abby Normal. Thank you once again for tuning in. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode on the Reigns Brothers. Thank you for entering the lab.